Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Let's go ahead and get started this morning. Uh, for those that are visiting, we are doing a quarter class on the life of David, man after God's own heart, and we are reviewing different aspects of David's heart. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do this morning, would you please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23? That will be our launching point uh, this morning. So, um, so the class I have today, I would say, is probably going to be the most unique class. Uh, that we do in this quarter. So um, I'm not really going to break for comments much in this one as I have in, in other areas. We've looked at different aspects of David and his character and have tried to make application into our daily lives uh, from that. Uh, today uh, is going to be a different style, I would say, of class. It's not so much that, but I do hope that today will be a faith-building uh, class. So our topic today that we're going to over, we're going to look at David as the seer. This would be referencing the controlled heart that he had. So this is a, I know it may bleed over into next week's class, but this is going to be a one-class session. And then next week, we will talk about David as the singer and the joyful and the cheerful heart that he had there. So, But the two subjects, I think, kind of pair together. We're going to be talking about David as an inspired man of God, as an inspired writer. And next week we will focus on him like in the Psalms and some of the songs they wrote. But today our focus is going to be primarily on prophecy uh, and prophecy that he gave and prophecy that relates to him. So, um, so we're going to be jumping around quite a bit in the Bible. I hope that you, uh, those that are taking notes will write down or those that want to write in the margins of their Bibles uh, on some things will bring up some passages. I want to start with 2 Samuel 23 verse 2. These are among the last words that David spoke, and this is one of the biggest definitions of inspiration that we find in the Old Testament. David says about himself that the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Uh, And I want to establish that, and we're talking about David being a prophet this morning. We often don't think of David in that terminology. However, in Acts chapter 2... The sermon on Pentecost, Peter referenced David as a prophet uh, in that sermon, and we will get into that uh, here shortly. But let's look at what David is saying here. So I want to break this verse down into a few parts. He starts out saying that the Spirit of the Lord... And I want to reference that, that what David is indicating here is the true source of Scripture. And this is something that the uh, the scripture comes from deity, that is its source. David did not originate the message that he had to say. And this is something that is confirmed in the New Testament in a couple of places. We find it with Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16. I think a a verse that's familiar to most people. um, Where Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. We see Peter talking about the Old Testament prophets in 1 Peter 1. And uh, here, he says, um, 
one second. I don't think I... No, excuse me, Second Peter 1. I've got to get the right book reference before I get there. Uh, verse 20 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was the avenue through whom God revealed his will to man, and David is reflecting this uh, in what he says. Now, he says, Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. Oh, it spoke by me. That indicates the transmission of this truth, how it was done. It did not originate with David. David was the instrument, the vessel, the means to reveal uh, the truth to men. And we see New Testament writers also saying this uh, about themselves. Ephesians 3, verse 3 through 5, Paul says here, How by that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And he's talking about New Testament prophets. Uh, there. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul makes another statement here, saying, For this reason... We also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively works in you who believe. And this is a point to make. So this is also true about David and uh, it being spoken of him. And we want to point that out because I'll just throw this question out here. Was every prophet that spoke in the Old Testament a true prophet? There are a bunch of false prophets there as well. I want to take a look at a more obscure passage real quick, but it's Jeremiah 23. And in the setting for this, Israel has rejected God by their lives, and um, it's leading them to be carried off into Babylonian captivity. As this is happening, uh, God has a message for um, the religious leaders and the prophets that are there with the people. And through Jeremiah, he's saying here in verse 16... Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. Skipping to verse 21. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they'd stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. We don't think about this, but I want to make the point that David was not a false prophet in what he was saying. He was a true prophet. He spoke the word of God. And maybe in terms that we might could relate to better today, he was not a false teacher. He was interested in the truth. He was interested in what God wanted and to follow it. And then lastly, in this verse, in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was on my tongue. So this looks at the method for the message. The word was in my tongue. The truth was revealed, and he recorded it. And uh, this was something also referenced in the Old Testament as well. In Jeremiah 26, verse 2, God makes a statement that Jeremiah about his word. And um, he says, Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not diminish a word. Okay, so every word that Jeremiah was to say was inspired of God. 
Ezekiel 2, verse 7, and of course Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Um, Again, we find another similar statement here. Um, God tells Ezekiel, you shall speak my words to them whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house. And so we see Paul in the New Testament confirming this same thought as well in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians. I've got to get my numbers right in front of these books. I'm doing that a lot lately in this class. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. He lets the Corinthians know, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So I wanted to just open up the subject today by pointing to this verse. And what I wanted to point out is that we can know that David spoke the truth. Uh, that he was inspired of God, and uh, uh, that can want to go from there and then take a look at some prophecies that relate to David, then in that case. So, like I said, we don't normally think of David as being a prophet. The more that I study this, the more I realize how much it's true that that uh, term can be applied to him in a lot of ways. So, uh, there are several examples of this that go um, throughout the Psalms that he wrote. Uh, so here's just a few brief examples. There will be some I want to get into deeper than just these. But if you even just think about the Messiah, about Jesus, and what happened towards the end of his ministry, we see that David um, prophesied about Jesus' betrayal by Judas. Psalm 41, verse 9, we have that statement there, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That's quoted in John 13, verse 18, uh, when uh, Judas, uh, Judas leaves to betray him. What about Psalm 22? The beginning of it starts out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We see Jesus quoting that on the cross. And it gives some description about his crucifixion that's also quoted uh, in Matthew 27. We have Psalm chapter 2, a very messianic psalm there. A lot of it is uh, referencing Christ's victory over his enemies and his rule. And that psalm is quoted in different areas of the New Testament. In Acts 4 by Peter, Acts 13 by Paul, and in Revelation 2, Jesus quotes it to John. Uh, so, a, uh, so those are just a few things that are there. So... The ones I want to go in deeper detail in are the prophecies that relate specifically to Acts 2 in the first gospel sermon there at Pentecost. So I want you to turn to these, and we're going to read these in successful order. I want you to turn to 2 Samuel 7. We referenced this last week, but I didn't have the time to read it. I want to start in verse 12 through 17. Now, this is not a prophecy that David speaks, but it's one that's given to him. He had in his heart to build the temple of the Lord. And, uh, and Nathan was thought the prophet, who was David's friend, thought this was a very good thing. But God intervened in that. Because David had been a man of war, he could not build the temple. That had to be done by his son Solomon. And so, you know, you know it, it, the, the way I kind of think of it is like this is David's big dream that he had, you know, to see this fulfilled. And, you know, the news he had to get that he couldn't do that himself. Yet he was willing to comply with that. But 
God did not just leave David by himself. In return, God revealed something to David about his future and the future of his descendants that uh, is, was very important to David. It's very important for us today. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words, according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This had some immediate application to Solomon and some of David's descendants, but it had greater application to something far greater. In fact, certain parts of this can only be fulfilled by something that was to come. But before we get to there, I want to turn to Psalm 16 next. We have David writing here again. Um, I want to start with verse 8 and read to the end of the psalm here. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then one more that I want to take a look at is Psalm 110. You would turn there. And I'll read the first four verses of this. Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness. From the wound of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we won't get into verse 4 in there, but this is a prophetic statement that the writer of Hebrews points to as being fulfilled in Christ and Melchizedek and his priesthood being a type of Jesus and his priesthood, I think in chapter 7 of Hebrews. But verse 1 is what I really want to focus on. Uh, for what we are looking at. So, I stepped through all these prophecies. Now let's go to Acts 2 in the beginning of the church. If you would turn there, and we're going to spend some time in Acts 2. So this is the, the first gospel sermon. And Peter is giving it. And um, he does some different things in this sermon. I guess in a sense you could say uh, that he uses apologetics in his sermon. At least we would say he uses evidence in his sermon. So he points to several different things in there. Number one, he points to the miracles that are taking place right then at Pentecost. Then he points to the miracles that Christ performed. And then he specifically points to the resurrection of Christ as evidence of what's going on. But fourthly, the other thing that he does is that he goes to the Old Testament and he points to prophecy and he looks at what is taking place as a fulfillment of that prophecy. We know most famously he quotes from Joel. There's four prophecies he states from. Most famously we know from Joel 2. But the other three that he quotes from are all Davidic. They all concern David or David was the one that wrote them down. So um, let's start with Acts 2 verse um, 
22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So Peter is pointing out here in Old Testament prophecy that David spoke of Christ. So this is from Psalm 16, as we just read. And the principle in the Old Testament was something that Jesus had even pointed out to the Jews who were questioning him and wouldn't believe him, right? In John 8, 31, he said that the Old Testament scriptures testified of him and who he was. So uh, Christ is the one that David is speaking about in this psalm. So he's going to show that here in um, verses 29 through 31. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's saying Psalm 16 can't be talking about David. David's not writing about himself. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Look at 2 Samuel 7. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So David foresaw Christ being raised, being resurrected. David was still dead, so he couldn't be the subject, but he had been promised that his descendants would sit on his throne, the throne of David. So Peter is stepping through these prophecies with them, and we know how the Jews felt about the Messiah and the earthly kingdom that he was supposed to set up and restore their fortunes as a nation. So Peter is pointing out to them with these prophecies that, uh, that uh, he's trying to teach them a different concept of kingdom than they had, and, and the nature of it. Let's continue the next two verses. Peter says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Okay, he's going to the evidence that's around him, that they all can see with their own eyes the Holy Spirit outpoured. David saw Christ exalted uh, as well, and that was revealed to him. Then... Let's do verses 34 through 36, the end of the sermon. For David did not ascend into the heavens. So that can't qualify him. David can't be talking about himself. But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's quoting from Psalm 110. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So David also saw Christ enthroned. He saw his reign on the throne of David. And he sits at the right hand of God, and he reigns, and he reigns from heaven. And so Peter is pointing out to them that uh, with what is taking place at Pentecost in Acts 2, all three of these prophecies that David spoke or were given to him have been fulfilled. And, um, and it was given centuries before, I guess a thousand years before actually it took place, out of the Old Testament 
using it to prove the New Testament and the validity of what's taking place there. So uh, I thought that would be interesting in looking at David from that perspective. I will stop right here in the middle of this for any questions or comments that anyone wants to make. Does anyone have anything? Okay, if not, I will take that as my cue to continue on uh, then. So uh, that's the first part. Now I want to get to the second part of this class because I thought this might be interesting to do in this. So we're talking about prophecy. The rest of this class, we'll have to see if I have time to finish it or not. I want to take a look at David in Old Testament prophecy. I want to take a look at David as a type of Christ. When you look at the Old Testament prophets and you look at the messianic prophecies that were given to the children of Israel, David's name comes up over and over and over again all throughout it. So I want to take a tour through the Old Testament prophets. But before we do that, I want to state some guidelines first before we get in there. Because... In looking at Old Testament prophecy, it's kind of like playing around with the stock market. It can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing when you're looking at it. So just a few things I want to state up front. I want to state up something that the Hebrew writer, writer Hebrews said in the beginning of the book in verse 1 of chapter 1. And it's a principle that I want to go by uh, in looking at prophecies. In that he said, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, some of the Old Testament, by the prophets. And what that points to is that the Old Testament prophets had different methods, different ways in which they gave prophecy. And that's very true if you look at uh, through it. So sometimes they spoke very plainly about what was to come and warning the people. Sometimes they used symbology. They would use apocalyptic language such as you would find in the book of Revelation. Uh, they would use that in their books. Sometimes they used visual demonstrations where they would do something and act something out, and this had meaning application to something that was going to befall the children of Israel. Sometimes they spoke by parables. You know, in regards to David, when Nathan approached David about his adultery, how did he do that? He spoke to him a parable about a lamb and family, and that was what got to David. Uh, in, in there. So, and that happened at some other times in the Old Testament as well. Uh, sometimes the uh, prophecy could be conditional. Think of Jonah and the message he was given to Nineveh. In you know, 40 days, and Nineveh would be overthrown. That didn't happen, right? It was conditional. It was on the basis of the Ninevites repenting. Because they did, God relented from that. But years later, when you get to the book of Nahum, and the prophecies in their concern, Nineveh, it seems like it's unconditional by that point. It seems like it's too late uh, there. God's prophesying the end of the Assyrian Empire uh, there. Also, in some instances, and what really relates to what we're going to go through, sometimes the prophecy could be literal. As I just said about Jonah, 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. But sometimes it was figurative in a lot of what they said, and that's especially true about messianic prophecies. And, and what they uh, say there. So a, um, uh, another thing I want to state to keep in mind, so that's point number one. Point number two, we live on the other side of when the New Testament was written. So when we think of the church and, and we think about uh, the gospel being for everybody, which is true, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, right? Uh, 
It's sometimes we could miss also, though, the fact that uh, the church and what took place with Christ in that age was part of the glorious future that was promised to the Jew in the Old Testament. It related to them uh, specifically. And uh, it was something that they were to look forward to. Um, and, and you can tell that when you look through these prophecies about them, that they also related directly to them. And it was prophesied that the Gentiles would also be included um, in that as well. So, um, And then something, point number three, I want to make. So, so I want to say that in, in some of these prophecies, he used symbology a lot. Because if you were trying to talk to a Jew, he wouldn't get words like church or Christian or words like that. You had to talk to them in ways that they understood, right? So what the, the prophecies would use terminology like this. Kingdom, throne, tabernacle, covenant, uh, those terminologies. Uh, and so we'll step through some of these prophecies. Now, one thing I want to state up front about some of these Old Testament prophecies is that Premillennialists will misinterpret these a lot. We'll see some as we go through them. Um, and it leads them to some certain beliefs that they have that doesn't square up with the New Testament. The reason that they do that is because they'll take Old Testament prophecies and read them as literal when they should be read as figurative. And you might say, well, Ben, how do you know that? How can I trust what you're saying? Well, when I look at an Old Testament prophecy, I let the New Testament writer that quotes it tell me what the meaning of it should be, and that's the guideline that I go by. Uh, on it, and and we'll see that in several of these. Okay, so I just wanted to state that as well. So uh, there were several characters in the Old Testament that were used as a figure of Christ that relate to. We could think of Adam. We see that in the New Testament. Moses. You know, he said that there would be a prophet like him in the future. Uh, Noah, Jonah, and some more obscure characters in the Old Testament, like Melchizedek for instance, or um, Zerubbabel, or Zechariah the high priest, and Zechariah, excuse me, Joshua the high priest, Zechariah 6. But of all of them, just from my study, it seems to me that David himself was used as a type of Christ more often than anybody else in the Old Testament was. Like I said, when you read through passages that talk about the Messiah, something about David is going to relate to it over and over and over again as you go through. So... um, with those said, then I want to begin in looking at some of these. If you would, turn to Isaiah 9. That's the one we're going to start with first. And I've got a, another point or two to make, but we'll do that later on uh, as we get to certain ones of these. So Isaiah 9, and uh, we'll start here and we'll just go through uh, several of these. Verses 6 and 7. I think this one is familiar to most people uh, here. I think we've even had songs that have been written out of this particular prophecy. But Isaiah is writing here, he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward even forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see about this child being born, this king that was going to become. He's going to have the throne of David, and he would have that forevermore. And um, when you think about David you know, as a king and about Israel's history, I kind of look at David as being the high point for Israel. 
Now, I mean, you can make the argument that under Solomon they had more power, more wealth in the kingdom. But if you're talking about a spiritual standpoint from what God expected of his rulers and what he expected as his people as a nation, David would be the, the apex of that. So when, when people are looking back in their history and looking forward to the Messiah, it would make sense to use David as a figure uh, for the Christ that would be to come. So, so we see this prophesied here, um, and we see it fulfilled in the New Testament. I made mention last week of Luke 1, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary in verse 31. Uh, he says that the son she conceives will be Jesus. He'll be great, son of the highest. Uh, he will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we see Gabriel pointing to this being the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. And, of course, Peter reiterated that in uh, Acts 2 in the sermon that he gave. So, so we see a link here. The throne of David is the throne of Christ, and he reigns as of right now. Flip a couple of pages over to Isaiah 11. This is the next prophecy I want to look at. This is a very famous one as well. Uh, David's name is not mentioned here, but his father's name is mentioned here, which is why I included it. So in verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of its roots. So we don't see the stem of Jesse mentioned in the New Testament. In Revelation 5 and Revelation 22, we do see Christ referred to as the root of David. So that would be pretty close. So, so this is one of those passages I was mentioned earlier that uh, can be misused uh, here. So as it goes into uh, spirit of the Lord, the Lord's uh, his delight is the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. We get into verses six and seven. We have this imagery that's listed here, where it's famous. It's the one about the wolf dwelling with the lamb. Um, so it gives this prophecy that prey and predator will get along with each other and that the infant will play with poisonous snakes and, and not be harmed. And so those that believe in a premillennial kingdom uh, interpret this literally and thinks this is literally going to come to pass in the future. Uh, I don't agree with that. I believe that this language here is metaphorical. It applies to the church age. And it's imagery describing the peace that would be in the church. You say, well, Ben, how can you say that? I say it because of verse 10. So in verse 10, Isaiah says, talking about this stuff, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the reason I point this verse out is because Paul, in Romans 15, quotes this verse in an argument that he's making in verse 12 of that chapter. So... So he's setting up this argument in regards to the Gentiles. Um, in verse 8, he says, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So then he goes quoting several places in the Old Testament. He quotes from David in 2 Samuel. He quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from Psalm 117. And then in verse 12, he says this. Again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse... And he who shall reign to rise of the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's quoting from that passage in Isaiah. And he's saying that uh, 
that it has been fulfilled has been fulfilled for the Gentiles and that they would have hope. And uh, that is going on currently. So that is my arguments for pointing that out. And again, it shows David prefiguring the Messiah in that aspect. So um, our time is running out. Let me see if I can at least finish up the next two from Isaiah before we're dismissed. Isaiah 22 is the next one I want to look at. This one's pretty neat to me. The context for this, I consider this passage to be an example of what I would call a dual fulfillment of prophecy, meaning it had an immediate application to when Isaiah gave it, but it had a second far-reaching application years later. The setting for this is a man by the name of Eliakim in verse 20. Um, He is replacing um, uh, another man, I forget what his name is, but anyway, so this is the days of Hezekiah. Eliakim is going to be over Hezekiah's household. And this is what is said about Hezekiah in verse 22. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, and he shall open, and no one shall shut. He shall, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. So Eliakim was going to be over King Hezekiah's household. We know that Hezekiah was of the lineage of David. He was part of the house of David. And the key, of course, symbolizes authority, and he would have the, the power... Uh, in making binding decisions and in allowing who would be granted access to the king and who would not. That's the immediate application of this passage. But it had a far-reaching one in the future. In Revelation 3 and verse 7, we see this passage quoted, but it's applied to somebody else uh, here. So this is a, uh, the, a place where John's writing to the... Jesus is speaking to the seven churches of Asia, and he's speaking to the church of Philadelphia here. And here he says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things says he who is holy and he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So we see then the key of the house of David, the key symbolizing the authority that the Messiah had, and he who would be able to have the ability to grant access and to refuse uh, uh, those. So... We have that prophecy. The last one is Isaiah 55, verse 3. It's funny because this is not listed as a prophecy here in my Bible, but it is quoted in the New Testament. Incline your ear and come to me, here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And we don't use the term mercies a lot in our language today, but you could interpret that as blessings. It is quoted in Acts 13 in a sermon that Paul gives, and he's trying to make um, an argument regarding the uh, resurrection of Christ as evidence of of Christianity. And he's stepping through several, uh, and beginning in verse 33, he steps through several Old Testament scriptures as well. He quotes from the second Psalm, Psalm 16. In verse 34, he says, He raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Referencing uh, the blessing God had in resurrecting uh, Christ himself and says that this verse was fulfilled in the new covenant. So we see the mercies of David is another uh, aspect of it that uh, takes place and is applied to Christ. So that is probably a good stopping point on this. I want to go through some further. There's others in Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, that I want to take a look at that are very interesting and important to us, and a few out of the minor prophets. We will wait and go through those in the next class. 
as well. But uh, as I wanted to point to, it's going to happen again and again and again, uh, especially in regards to the people as the prophets are teaching them, and they're being carried off into captivity and carried off into the exile. These prophecies become very important to them. Oftentimes, you have a prophetic technique where the prophets will prophesy about them returning from exile and returning back to the land, which would be important for them to know. And then all of a sudden, you will see these statements made about some leader that's going to rise up among them. And and oftentimes, it will say their servant David. And so uh, they use the the prophecy about um, the return from the captivity and it kind of prefigures the, the prophecy about the Messiah coming as well. And just as sure as they did return from captivity, um, then so too they could take confidence that the Messiah would come. We see Jesus using that technique, if you think about Matthew 24, where he prophesies about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then later he prophesies about his return. It's kind of similar language in that, but just as assuredly as his prophecies about the destruction of Jerusalem came true in that generation, so we also can take confidence that his prophecies about his return are going to take place. Same principle would have applied to the Jews here. And even though those prophecies about the Messiah were centuries off in fulfillment, they were important for them uh, to give them hope because they knew that even through their dark and dreary times that they were facing, that they would continue on as a people because they knew that the Messiah was still promised to them in the future. Why don't you keep all that in mind as we go through some of these next ones uh, at the beginning of class next week. With that, you're dismissed. Thank you for coming. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer... Send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.